Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by Sue Wilton and Peter Cat. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dom. Hey, Dom. Good to be here. And uh, today we are going to be looking at, I suppose, a, a very key element of the faith life that, that we do speak a lot about on this podcast, which is, um, I suppose, reframing faith from being a set of beliefs and things you believe into a transformative event of something that happens in you, to you, for you, um, and particularly how that ties into the Easter season and the, the season of Lent that we are uh, heading into at time of recording here. Uh, if you are listening to this at some time of the year that isn't near Lent or near Easter, it is still um, a very relevant conversation because as we will touch on, these patterns of transformation are occurring all through our lives, I suppose, Lent and Easter is just a, a time of year to focus quite squarely on them. Um, maybe as, as a way of starting this conversation, Peter, we could speak a little bit about uh, Easter because it is a season which um, I think for many, for many, obviously not of faith, it's a, it's a season about a brief holiday, um, you know, and some chocolate and hot cross buns, which are, you know, one of the gifts that the already in the supermarkets <laughs> the season has given us. Um, but but uh, I suppose for, for even the people who would say they are of faith, uh, Easter has largely become maybe just you, you go to a few services and you sit there and you feel guilty a bit because you think you're meant to feel guilty because of humanity's role in, in this death. But then you go home and not much really changes. Can you help us reframe what the season of Easter perhaps can be or, or, or is intended to be? Sure. Um, I think I think the best um, handle I can give for Easter is to think about baptism. And uh, in, in Lent, well, Lent works best for me when we've got a bunch of people who are preparing for baptism or taking seriously the idea that at Easter they will reaffirm their baptism. And so in Lent there's this deep engagement with the stories of the faith and the church is really good at setting up the right stories in Lent that invite us into a journey of transformation rather than just a journey of information with the idea that when we hit what we call the great three days uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday and uh, Easter Day itself with uh, the um, Maundy Thursday in there as well, that we're actually uh, in sync with the Jesus story. It's the one time of the year when we actually keep pace with the Jesus story. So we have Palm Sunday a week out, and then on the Thursday night we gather together to reenact the Last Supper, and on Good Friday we focus on the cross. On Holy Saturday we have the day of desolation and emptiness, and then Easter Day we celebrate uh, the resurrection and so we actually have to enter fully into the journey we have to pair ourselves with the Jesus story and find out how that story uh, is enacted in us and when people are preparing for baptism or reaffirmation of their vows they help us into that journey so they do the lead they lead the washing of the feet um, they lead us in the reaffirmation of the vows and so we enter into enter into real time uh, the the story of Jesus and seek ways for that rhythm uh, to be recognized in our own lives. I think for those who aren't involved in a church, the idea of going that many days and, and all through Lent and leading up to this walking with Jesus over 
Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday is actually, it gets missed, you know, between the hot cross buns and the Easter eggs. That long journey gets missed. I know when my son was about seven or eight years old and he was being dragged back to church for, you know, the fourth time, um, he rolled his eyes and said, oh, mum, why did Jesus have to go and die on a long weekend? <laughs> why do you have to go and yes, stuff up yes. a perfectly good holiday? You know, and, but I think that that journey is, is, is such a, this is why this is such a huge part of the life of the church, because there's not many times in, in our human social experience where we go on such a long journey together. And one that's actually, yeah, it, it is about life and resurrection at the end, but on the way there's death. Mm. And, and that is at, at the heart of the transformation. I think that is, um, that is really what Easter has become to, to many people. Certainly growing up, that was my experience, was um, uh, about, uh, as you said, Peter, information rather than transformation. It was acknowledging the um, belief in a historical event that these events had happened. Um, and we'd acknowledge it and then we'd go back and we'd eat the chocolate and we'd eat the hot cross buns. Um, but, but I suppose if you just, if you just reduce it to that, if you only reduce it to acknowledging something that happened 2000 odd years ago, you, 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 would you say you're missing the, the whole invitation of Easter? Absolutely. Um, and, and many, many church people miss it themselves because we still have, uh, a large number of people who will say turn up for Easter Day, and that's the only time. That's the only part of the season they've experienced, or will come on Palm Sunday and then Easter Day, and so the the middle bit, middle bit gets lost out. And one of the things um, I think the church does really well in in many places is because of the power of the liturgies, you can't restrict it to information. The liturgy actually unlocks us. So, you know, on Good Friday, on um, Maundy Thursday, when we uh, we wash feet and strip the church of all its furnishings, and the lights start to go out, um, people are surprised how deeply they are affected by it. It actually really, it's not just a church service. It is. A transformative experience and the fact that it's happening at exactly the same time that Jesus would have experienced it um, adds to the power and then Good Friday again a very different liturgy a very stark liturgy the liturgy of the cross uh, and then you're gathering at, a, at an ungodly hour like you know 5 30 in the morning for lighting Easter fires and we're we're doing stuff that's so out of our natural order that you can't keep it to uh, just being a bunch of information. People, mm. the the liturgy actually unlocks us and and serves the purpose of bringing the story into us, so that we actually then begin to reflect on how that story is our story, and that's where the transformation happens because it's about the heart. And we feel it, and you know, uh, year by year, watching people at the foot of, when we do as part of our Good Friday service, people come and make some sort of acknowledgement at the foot of the cross. Um, you know, getting to sit where I sit in the cathedral, you can just see how profoundly people are being touched. Mm. It's interesting. I know a question I get a lot from friends who are not uh, not of faith to use the language they would use is is why why do you 
um, make this a part of your life. You know, you, you know that you could sleep in on Sundays. I mean, I go to an evening service anyway, but you know, you could have your Sunday night off then, for example. Is this all just to get into a nicer place after you die? Is that the intention? But I suppose this is one of the many things that, that we're talking about here is that embracing the pattern of death and new life that seems to be evident throughout all of life is an enormous gift for uh, living to the fullness of, of your life. And that does turn into the cruciform pattern, which we should touch on here, Sue, because I think this is integral to this conversation. Can you give some background, I guess, on what the, for those who mightn't have heard that term before, and I know there's a few other terms with it, what, how would you define what the, the cruciform pattern is? I think the cruciform pattern is at the heart. It's a metaphor that's at the heart of all life and true transformation, real change, um, and real freedom too. Uh, it's it's basically that pattern whereby we allow things to die so that new life can come. We follow Christ so that Christ surrenders to love and to and to even death on a cross, and and then is then rises again. And if we look through our lives, we can see you know, be aware of those times that um, we hang on to things that maybe their time has come, maybe it's been time for them to die and then there's times of new life and or there's things that we need to allow to die um, for that new life to emerge and Jesus himself uses metaphors of seeds falling to the ground and, you know, things having to... And we look all around us. It's not like this is a new idea. You know, all through nature there's this pattern of things dying and, and being reborn. Um, new life emerging from death and yet we somehow I think try to hang on to life on our own terms on its own terms and on the way we want to control uh, and part of the, the the at the heart of the the cruciform pattern of life is surrender um, and recognizing that we have to let go in order for new life to come mm. well let's just talk through the cruciform pattern a bit then because I suppose if you look at that the story of the the four days of Easter that you spoke about there, Peter, it does, as the, the pattern suggests, mirror often the deaths and resurrection of our own lives, of relationships or careers or or stages of lives, uh, uh, stages of life that are coming to an end. And it does begin with the Thursday night, um, which you did just mention before mm. we started recording, that the desolation in the garden is not an exclusively Jesus experience. No. Um, that's right. So you, on Thursday night, you have have that amazing complexity of intimacy. So Jesus is meeting with his disciples to share a meal. So and there is this beautiful sense of intimacy in um, the Maundy Thursday liturgy that picks that up of a select group of people drawn together and. Um, you know, so close to each other that they are one. And then they go out into the garden and Jesus has that sense of he's going to be betrayed and someone or handed over, as I prefer to say. Um, and one of his closest people hands him over and one day we should do a podcast on Judas and on all of that because that would be a really good podcast to do. Um, and Jesus is 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 the so the intimacy and the desolation and the handing over and the betrayal and not being understood are all part of that complexity. Mm. And you know, if we're honest, that's part of our life. There are times when. Um, you know, the, the people who we think we're closest to don't understand us. We feel alone even when we're with people. 
Um, we have to wait sometimes to see how things will turn out, which is something that's so countercultural for us. And so you've got that, in that one evening, you've got that amazing complex of stuff. And, you know, because the liturgy says, here's an intimate action, wash each other's feet. Here is another intimate action, share food together. Now stand there while everything around you is uh, stripped away. So, the, you know, while the stripping of the cathedral happens or any church happens, the people are standing there just watching basically their life being torn apart. And then we invite people to sit and wait and watch. To sit in the garden, we do sort of a garden-like space. And people are asked just to sit and wait. Lose control. You can't control what's going to happen. And then that gives way into Good Friday and the most, uh, then the most ignored of all days in the cycle, which is Holy Saturday, which most people just skip over. And, and it's the day of emptiness. It's the day that mirrors our experience when someone dies or when a relationship dies. You have no idea what to do next. So you fiddle around doing stuff, trying to fill the time so that the space doesn't get to you and yet you can feel that um, creeping in on you. Um, so that, you know, this pattern, um, the pattern so uh, mirrors our life if we're honest about our lives. And it challenges that tendency for us to try and normalize life and keep it all the same and keep the same pattern happening and... You know, even in some households, you know, the same, you know, it's curried sausages on Monday, sort of, uh, every Monday just to keep that pattern alive and work and routine um, stops us from feeling these things. Mm. And here we have a liturgy that says, hey folks, or a set of liturgies that say, this is your life. Uh, and... Now, you know, experience the death. So don't go looking for it. And that's one of the, I think, one of the things we need to unpack in this is you don't, you don't go seeking out the death because it, 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 it comes for you. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't need, I mean, it's not, this is not about setting yourself up for, um, for suffering because life just does that. And then uh, it's about then looking for the seeds of the new life. And, you know, as Sue was saying that, that beautiful cycle where you know, death gives way to life in the most um, surprising ways that um, just I, I'm forever in awe of. So if the Thursday night is the experience of emptiness, abandonment, maybe the dark night of the soul of sorts, perhaps mirroring when a bad diagnosis comes through or you yeah. discover that a partner's been unfaithful yep, or... Yep that you're, there's redundancies coming in at yes, work. Yeah. I suppose then the Friday would be the day of the death, the day of the breakup, the mm -hmm. day of the being made redundant. Yes. Um, yep. And then the Saturday is the, the day before anything new has come, the liminal yeah. space where you yep. just have to sit with yep. the death that has occurred in your yep. life and there is no joy, hope yet. That's right. Um, and it, it's quite different. Like often when people... Uh, who are maybe in your life, friends or family, who are going through that Saturday, that liminal space where something's ended mm. and yet the new life has not yet come. 
it's very hard to to be a friend to somebody in that space. It's one of the most. It's probably. I, I, would you agree the most complex time to be there for somebody in a sense? It's actually there's no fix. It's actually the best time to be around for anybody, but um, it's actually just accepting that there is there is no fix, and there's actually no need for a fix. It's um, it's the bit of it's the bit where our culture just like backfills everything. So, you know, when someone dies in our culture, um, people rush to organise the funeral and to move on and the stuff, you know, to, to fill it up. Um, I think one of the most important things I can offer to a funeral process is to say to people, well, let's, let's not have the funeral tomorrow, let's have it in a week. And so you actually get, you actually get some Holy Saturday time in there sometime because there's still a lot of busyness getting ready for the funeral, but if you've organise it a week out, maybe day or three or day four along the line. Uh, it's all organised and people then have to wait. And we tend to shy away from waiting with people in that space because we don't know what to do. And the great thing is you shouldn't have, there's nothing you can do. Just give them the gift of your presence and turn up. You know, people who are in that space will always say the people who did the best thing for them were the people who just sat there and held their hand. Mm. And I think it's also for someone when you work in 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 funeral ministry that working with people around funerals is one of the most sacred things because in that waiting time they're really real. It's like all the stuff, all the extraneous things, the things that they're keeping up appearances, they all get stripped away. And it means that sometimes it can be messy too in families. So it doesn't mean it's all beautiful and rosy, but it can be, while it's in that messiness, it's also incredibly honest and authentic. And to spend time with people across that, with that authenticity in that waiting is the most beautiful thing. As again, Whereas like weddings, not all of them, thankfully, but a lot of weddings get crowded out with people's um, perceptions, the way they want to project their image, the way um, they want to be appear to others, how successful they want it to be. All those trappings that we put on in everyday life get piled on there. So that's why funerals, as against weddings, are such a sacred, a sacred kind of ministry to be involved in. But it, that Easter Saturday day, that time of waiting is really, really important. And we do see that, I guess, mirrored. Uh, in nature or as if if a plant isn't allowed to die there will not be new life that grows it, it can just sit there diseased for years until someone finally decides to dig it up or you know yeah. to actually let it die and let something new grow and if you do plant a seed you have to actually wait for it to germinate and yeah. grow and it takes time and if you're not patient with it and think well this is not doing anything and dig it up it's going to be dead so it it the thing, beautiful thing about Holy Saturday, I think, particularly, is that it invites us to just let go of our culture's drivenness, mm. our need for stuff to be controlled, and and the garden is part of that experience too. I mean, Jesus, Jesus models the stature of waiting um, in that whole Passion time where he's arrested. He he just stops. He stops fighting in a sense and waits, waits to see what will happen, waits to see what his disciples will do, wait to, waits to see what the authorities will do. He waits. And our culture is just so not into waiting. And yet sometimes uh, it's the very thing we need to do, wait to see what happens, what does emerge. Um, when we lose a job, don't just, you know, by all means, you know, in a sense, whenever the loss happens, you, we, we want to backfill it very quickly, so we, we rush into the next thing. Um, 
Whereas Holy Saturday says to us, uh, you're not going to get to resurrection until you've done the time. Mm. Until you've done the time. It is interesting because the uh, I suppose the Good Friday, from an external viewpoint, looks like the most excruciating part of the journey, where the you know mm. the nails are hammered in, mm. um, the death occurs, the sacking occurs, yep. the breakup occurs. Um, but often, you know, the experience of Holy Saturday can be a more desolate, more gut-wrenching experience than the actual hammering in of the nails. Yeah, well, there's nothing. There's nothing on Holy Saturday. Where's Jesus? Great question. Where's Jesus on Holy Saturday? There's nothing. There's nothing. So when you look at the Holy Saturdays of your life that you've gone through, hmm. how, do, how do you remember? What, what sticks in your mind from those events? Um, the feeling of um, it's over, um, of... There's nothing, you know, nothing to live for because there is no life. Those sort of responses, and um, I, I guess the reason why I'm sort of stumbling a bit is is because after a while you learn the Paschal pattern. Um, there's also because it's a pattern that repeats itself. There's also this little thing in the back of your being somewhere that says, ah, yes, but Easter always comes. But what does it look like? So it's just, it's not, it's not knowing what the risen Christ is going to look like, but it is, I get, you know, I, I'm just thinking, you know, my most devastating experience, I guess, was, um, was the breakup of my marriage. And even in that, um, experience i had i had a sense that there was a resurrection somewhere down the track but i had no idea how i must have said i had no idea how long holy saturday was going to be and it certainly wasn't only a day <laughs> <laughs> so um i think and i think that's i think that's the power of the pattern is after a while you learn that the pattern is real and predictable and there is always new life mm. And it's never the same as the old life, which I think is part of what resurrection is about, is that the new life, it's the same life in one sense, because it's my life, but the new life is not the old life. I think the, the old life, though, it also is about all of it, nothing being lost, mm, all of it being gathered up. It's not like this is a stage that something dies and we move on and it's all in the past as if it never existed. I think the grace of God is such that all of our life, all mm. the disparate parts, the parts we don't like, the good, the bad and the ugly are all mm. gathered up in that resurrection life. And I mm. do think that mm. sometimes the, the Easter Saturday waiting, it may feel like you're just doing one foot in front of the other and you're keeping it, and that's my, and keep yourself busy um, while, while you're waiting for it to be over. But there is also that sense, um, there's, well, there's some risks with Holy Saturday too, I think. I think there's, there's the risk that you rush in to fill it with something else. There's that... Um, the rebound relationship. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or the addictions of various kinds, yeah, you know. Rebounds. I think addictions mm. are actually a um, pseudo-filler for mm. God all the time. And, uh, and mm. I'm not just talking drug and alcohol addictions. You know, there's all forms of addictions that we can have as people that we do for substitute yep. for, for the, um, the deep, rich experience of God, mm. you know. And work, work being one of them. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm. And, and so that how, how do we actually um, 
find have that self-knowledge and I guess part of um, Lent for me is entering into this journey trying to um, let go of of those kind of attachments, the addictions, the things that are getting in the way of me allowing the of the to surrender to the spirits, so that that new thing can be born, um, and trusting and knowing that even if you sometimes when you're in that holy Saturday space, you know that God loves you, but you don't feel it. You just you're not. It's not getting through. At that awareness that that love is there, and the waiting for what is most precious. And recognizing that our futile attempts to fill it up and pretend that everything's okay are just that, and they're addictive patterns that actually get in the way of the new life that's coming. So, but what do you both of you? Because I know most churches don't run really anything on Holy Saturday. Um, it's sort of a you leave the Good Friday service and we'll see you Sunday. <laughs> what do the two of you do on Holy Saturday? Do you have any any rituals? Do you have any practices that you um, spend that day doing? Well, well, the first thing we do is try not to fill the day up so that it's not full of stuff because that is one of the busy, you know, being trying not to be too busy. We, we always have morning prayer, which is always focused on the idea of, which comes out of the Orthodox tradition, that in on Holy Saturday, Jesus was harrowing hell. He was closing hell down for all time. Um, and we gather here and just work quietly together getting the place ready for Easter um, but in a deliberatively uh, slow and reflective way. So we start with prayer, uh, quiet prayer and then just sort of spend the day pottering. But we don't fill it up with stuff because you could, it's one of those days if you had too much in the way of church services you'd be just doing what we've just been talking about and filling it with stuff to avoid the emptiness. The fact that not much happens is actually really important. And so we observe the day partly through its emptiness. Because you've got you to have the emptiness. You've got to have the day when not much happens. Mm. Mm. Well, then, obviously, if you sit there, and I remember we had Jim Shammer on the podcast a little while ago. I've heard him speak before on this about how historically the Holy Saturday, there was nothing you could have said to the disciples that day that would have taken away their pain. Mm, absolutely. There was, I mean, there was no solution that day. Yeah. But if you sit, all, all that you could have done is really sit with them, put an arm around yeah. them, make them a cup of tea, perhaps. Because yeah. imagine, because you know, the depths of their experience, uh, uh, it the Holy Saturday experience for the disciples must have been a day of absolute agony. Okay? They've had that beautiful time with Jesus on Thursday night where he's washed feet with them, he's broken bread with them, he's told them that he loves them, he's told them that he wants them to love everyone back and all that sort of stuff. They go out to the garden, Jesus gets arrested, and they all stuff up. Mm. Right? So, you know, we, we like to focus on Judas because he's the betrayer, in inverted commas, and say, well, you know, Jesus did it. Uh, Judas did Jesus in. But Peter denies knowing him, doesn't stand up for his mate in shorthand. Um, everyone else nicks off, right? Jesus is left by himself, gets uh, done by a kangaroo court, and gets killed. So, you know, put yourself into that space, 
your mate's been killed, you didn't stand up for him, um, you denied knowing him, and he's gone. Imagine, imagine what was really going through the heads of the disciples on Holy Saturday. Not, oh, this is just the day before. You know, no worries, Jesus will be back tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Which is, you know, which is the problem we have by shorthanding the whole thing, and reading the Easter Jesus stuff where, you know, the Gospels are written after the event. We read that back into history so that we imagine the disciples are thinking, oh, Jesus mentioned something about this. No worries, we'll just wait. Rather, it's a day of, my God, what did we do? This guy, he gave us everything and we left, you know, we, we buggered off on him. Mm. And we can't fix it. He's dead. He's, he's, he's in a grave that we don't even know particularly where he is because someone, someone else has taken the body. And just beforehand on Palm Sunday, there's that triumphant march. Yeah, where they probably yeah. Thought, hey, he's in a hoe, he's in a hoe. Yeah. yeah, the revolution's underway. That's where, right. We like everything's yeah. coming together. It's and all now coming not, together, and now, now we're just after. And we and we didn't play our part. Yeah, and here, I mean, what we're talking about here is that moment of you know, terrifying honesty. Really, that confronting honesty that that the disciples would have faced on Easter Saturday, and um, where we are in the lecturing at the moment. This Sunday, we're coming up to a reading of Peter, um, a much earlier Peter, who has a similar moment. It just shows that this, this pattern plays out again and again. Has a similar moment when he hasn't been able to catch any fish. Jesus takes them out and says, cast into the deeper waters. Again, hear that metaphor. We need to, we need to uh, cast into the deeper waters. Don't just stay on the surface. Go on the deeper waters. And this amazing catch of fish you know, comes in, fish all over the boat. Peter looks at Jesus and sees both who Jesus is and sees himself as he is in that moment of confronting honesty and says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. And there's that moment, and it is like an Easter Saturday moment. And so much so, in fact, that we have in John's Gospel a similar story, but it happens after Jesus' resurrection, that that's when that one makes the appearance because they recognise then that this joyful catch of fish and the, and the recognising Jesus once again, but this time post-resurrection, post all the trauma of Good Friday and and the Easter Saturday waiting, we have again um, this renewal of life and the and the presence of Jesus with them. You know, but Peter's gone through, and I mean, this is Peter who 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 um, he's had that experience. You know, where we find Peter encountering Jesus when he's first called. Then he, you know, he still goes on after seeing everything that Jesus does. He still goes on and thinks he can muff his way through this and protect himself. Um, and only after, as he sees the horrible events of Good Friday play out, does he do, is he confronted with himself again. You know, so how often in our lives are we actually we we go through the motions of protecting ourselves, trying to not put ourselves into situations where we're going to be hurt, trying to not put ourselves in situations where we're going to be ashamed, but instead of uh, being honest, what we actually do is make the situation worse by layering yeah. and layering our, our, um, our masks on, you know, trying to self-justify all the time until eventually, if we are graced, if we have a moment, if we're lucky enough, we have a moment when we see, like Peter did, see Jesus for who Jesus is and see ourselves for who we are. And then that moment is, is one of awe and wonder and we might say something similar like, get away from me, God. Yeah. 
It's funny. I remember I gave a message uh, just around this time last year, just after um, we'd had Easter, about the, um, I guess, the way that our lives continually follow this pattern, how it stuck out to me that, you know, even after spending, you know, three years of Jesus' public ministry alongside the, the man himself, still the disciples. You know, you I think many people probably think if they had a day with Jesus, they'd be set for life. They would, like, the, the transcendent glow would wash over them. They'd get all the wisdom yeah. they need and they'd yeah. be set for life. But even after three years alongside him, still they stumbled and still they abandoned and ran away. And I guess there is a sense in that which you have to for constantly forgive your humanity. Absolutely. In a sense. Well, we've had 2,000 years of being with Jesus and we still haven't got it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So three years ain't nothing, really. But yeah. uh, that's exactly right. We have to keep um, keep understanding who we are. Mm. And um, to be human is just quite an amazing, amazing experience, I think. Um, but we have to understand who we are and we're not we're not not human and coming to terms with being a human being is i think our greatest challenge because we are a very interesting animal mm. it is interesting when you do i guess juxtapose the triumphant march in on palm sunday after three years of public ministry mm-hmm. with jesus you know, probably thinking in that moment, like we've, we've solved all the problems, everything's here. Like here, we, we're about to start a whole new way of being. Yeah, the new order has arrived. Yeah, and and then you know, uh, uh, just shortly afterwards, mm. the you know the the I guess the text tells us they find themselves in a locked room, arguing, mm. <laughs> probably feeling desolate, probably feeling uh, immensely guilty. And what I find amazing is that Jesus, the risen Christ, appears to them and the first words are, peace be with you. Yeah. It's like, a, forgive yourself for that. Mm. It's okay. Stop beating yourself up. Yeah. And again and again, that does seem to be the message, I guess, when you have that moment of complete honesty with yourself, that you're and accepted yeah, there. And, and not just peace be with you, but don't be afraid is the other message yes, that comes yeah. up again and again mm. in, in Scripture. Don't be afraid. That's what God appears. You know, why, why we have to put up this idea of God as an angry, vengeful God when over and over again in Scripture, whenever, whether it be, angelic beings or whether it be Christ the, the message is always don't be afraid mm. uh, and yet it's our fear that holds us back our fear and our shame that holds us back from being authentic so the moment you get into that holy Saturday that deep desolation and you have that radical honesty where you're confronted with who you've been or what you've done that you mightn't like the message of God in that moment is always, don't be afraid, peace be with you. It's it's radical acceptance at your lowest. And sometimes you need to get there to see that, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And that does seem to be then, when you reach that point in life, the spark that often leads to a, a, some sort of a resurrected life. Would you agree yeah, with that? Well, it's out of that, out of that darkness the resurrection comes. Yeah. So it is about entering into the darkness and into our own darkness because that's where the tra- that's where the seeds of transformation lie. It's that that awesome awesome experience of understanding who you are, and then finding that you're not condemned for being who you are. Mm. And, the, and uh, to an extent, you know, God's okay without sin. Yeah, <laughs> in that <laughs> actually, sense, yes. There is, mm. there is a sense you can say that's true because we actually don't find our way to God without it. There's the the whole world and our and our existence is geared in favour of weakness and failure. Mm. You know that it's only you cannot. 
be so clever that you find your way to all the spiritual answers of the universe. You know, the answers only ever come through weakness and failure and an honest appraisal of those and seeing where you are at and encountering a God of love and allowing yourself to be loved. Mm. But you, there is there is no shortcut. I mean, there's, you know, the people uh, probably misquote Martin Luther's saying "sin boldly," but I've always kind of liked it because I think there's <laughs> there's a level of yeah. because you're not going to get there if mm. you live the the most entrenched um, personalities. People that that really struggle to find any freedom are often the ones who've led the best lives mm. in terms of if you're going to put them on paper and mm. tick off all the good things they'd done and that the failures they didn't have. Um, often you'll find that that is actually counterproductive, that that it doesn't lead them to a greater, a deeper understanding or walk with God. It actually can lead them away because it's almost impossible to avoid that self-righteousness or that sense of, I did it on my Mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. And yet what we're being driven all the time towards is to recognising that we are not the self-made man or woman, Mm -hmm. that we are actually totally reliant on God and that that through our failures, then we learn. So what, what is it to enter into that darkness well? Because a lot of people enter into that darkness and maybe listen to melancholic music for weeks and just feel totally, you know, kind of indulge the, the sadness or the darkness. People do turn to alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. There are countless examples of what entering into the darkness of Holy Saturday poorly mm. or yeah. un, unhelpfully might yeah. be. Um, what, what, what does it look like to enter into the darkness of Holy Saturday well? I think the secret is to do it in community. Yeah. I think I think the reason we get it so wrong is that we develop a sense that we have to do it ourselves, which is an impossibility. And we also because of our culture have a sense that I'm I'm the only one that's stuffed up here. And I think the thing that got the disciples through it was that they were together in their desolation and that's certainly i think that in, in talking talking certainly in my own experience the thing that gets me through my holy saturdays are the people who i trust with my soul basically the people i'm prepared to say this is happening for me i'm in this space and they replace the alcohol, the melancholic music, the because you know, they, they journey with me and I journey with them, and you know when we have that sort of soul talk um, with other people, we realise that well, actually, Peter, there's nothing actually that special about your life and your journey. It's actually got some resonances with a whole lot of other people's life and journey. Um, it's through that journeying together that one begins to recognise the solidarity of being a human being and that we're actually meant to be doing stuff in partnership and in community and that there is a pattern that my life is just like your life. And when we talk, and so when we enter into that sort of experience together... Um, we can replace all of the bad doing of Holy Saturday. Mm. And then 
the resurrection occurs. The new life comes on, I, I suppose, yeah. in this story on the Sunday is when we, yep. you know, here at the cathedral, I know in darkness, the bonfire is lit yep. out the front. Well, hopefully in darkness, you yep. did mention before yeah, you well, recorded. The later Easter is, the better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes a bit earlier in the year. Early, early Easter's are not appreciated. So. <laughs> yeah, um, Sunrise gets there before we do. But, <laughs> but yes, in a, in a later Easter, it yep. is darkness and then yep. you light this bonfire out the front of the cathedral yep. and... It, it, it does mirror that stage, I suppose, in life where the light in the darkness appears. Maybe it's the first day you wake up yep. and you feel joy again. Yes. Um, or, or maybe you meet somebody after many months of feeling empty mm. and suddenly this person makes yep. you feel alive again yes. on this job or yeah. whatever it might be. Yep. Um, something interesting, though, that does seem to, to happen in that part of life, in my experience, is that it isn't like a one day you wake up and everything's great from that point onwards. No. It's very much a gradual... It's a gradual thing. It's like dawn, you know. Yeah. I find dawn an absolutely fascinating thing because it always takes it takes me by surprise. You, know, you one minute it's dark and then seemingly it's the lights have come on and somewhere in between was that moment where darkness gave way to light, but you don't actually recognise it usually until after it's happened. And I think that's one of the great things about new life and resurrection is we often recognise it in hindsight, and so we begin we. We might still think we're on Holy Saturday and then realise that actually last week I actually had... Actually, if I think about it, last week there was that little magic moment and I didn't even notice it, but it happened. And and, so, and it's like the dawn. I think, I think dawn is the great metaphor for resurrection. It's not... It's not a sudden ta-da thing. It is a gradual unfolding... And we don't even recognise the first signs of it. And then we think, oh, the sun's up. Mm. And you can't actually pinpoint the moment, which I think is really important because this is actually about a process of becoming. And it is gradual. And as we all know, the you know, the lights fade. And <laughs> I think it's important too, sometimes we can... Um, because we're so prone to thinking of in terms of linear progress. Yeah. I think it's really important that we uh, sort of dispel that idea. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And also that we have in our head things that will make for what that resurrection looks like, things that it might be a breakthrough or it might be, you know, um, you get that new job or, you know, you're going to wait for that moment. And so you pin all your hopes on that thing. But I, I think there's, there's a lot of space recognising for starters that, life isn't it may feel linear but it's not that actually all we have we have right now i think that's a meister eckhart thing too we'll talk about the grace all the grace that we have we have with us within us right now um that god is 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 present now our that dawn might be the slow awakening of that quiet grace Mm. and it might be a quiet grace that means that you um you have realized that you've let go of 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 some of the performance ideas or you've let go of some of the things that were holding you back and that that grace and the the just the sheer quiet presence of god is there and and you know that of um isn't in that kind of linear progress get your way to the top kind of category that's that's a quiet lived joy that sort of deep bubble of joy that that can be can can dawn so even if it's not you know, there, there's plenty of people, I think, I don't know where I've got this phrase from, but I know I've stolen it from somewhere, people leading lives of quiet desperation. Um, and I think it is such a telling phrase because there are people everywhere leading lives of quiet desperation. 
um, people you meet in the street, people you may never realise what's going on for them. Um, but the dawn of the new day can be a, um, a dawn of, of a new acceptance of self, a new of sense of, in the mystic sense, a new sense of unity with God mm. and, and unity and oneness and wholeness because that's the kind of healing and the kind of life that our God is into. And I guess when we think about Easter, we have to think about people, Christians, as being transformed people. And one of the greatest... Um, drivers of my life and my journey through, as I've mentioned on this before, multiple churches was because, and um, I guess it kept being careful of, of uh, upsetting people who know me from previous churches, um, but uh, the vast majority in, in some of my earlier manifestations of church, they didn't look anything different from people outside the church. And sometimes they were a whole lot worse. Sometimes because they had, there was that sense of we've achieved it. There is, we are different from others. We've drawn the line in the sand and we believe we are God's people and there's the great unwashed, you know, that that actually led them to be less loving. So hidden in all of this is that recognition that this, this can be a painful process. It can be about letting go even unto death, but it's actually about being a trans, being transformed by the spirit. It is interesting how much in people's narratives as well, they, you know, people of, with no uh, sense of a spiritual life will talk about how their breakup or being fired was the best thing that ever happened to them mm. because of the, the new life that, that followed yeah. it. How, mm. whether, whether you notice it or not, this is the pattern that mm. is happening in, in the human story day to day. Yeah, and the Christian story is so deeply embedded in our culture that, you know, even, even when people say, well, when one door closes, another one opens, that is a version of that, um, that very same pattern. Mm. Yeah. So I suppose if we acknowledge that that, that Thursday to Sunday pattern is a condensed mm. um, metaphor almost for the, the deaths and resurrections of that are, that are all through life, mm. you know, on a small level, it could be having a cold, you mm. know, that, that you get sick and you go through the cold and mm. then you come out again mm. and you feel like, but on a, that's on a small level, but on a big level, it could be a, a death. It could be a breakup. It could be something like that. What does mm. the, what then is Easter in terms of allowing us to, like once we've noticed that, what does that then do for us as a, or what can it be for us as a season? Well, it's the time, um, going back to the baptism idea again, um, in the church, the newly baptised spend the next 50 days of the season working out what it is to live the new life. And so, you know, Easter is not an arrival point. Easter is the beginning of the next phase. And we need, if, if we're going to make the best of it, we need to develop and continue reflective practices rather than saying, well, thank goodness that's over and then, whoo, off and forgetting we need to enter then even more deeply into a reflective process to ask ourselves the question, so what am I going to do with the gift of this new life? Mm. So we don't just re-establish another pattern or, the, or even worse, the old pattern, that we actually enter into a really deep reflective process that is constantly asking the question, so what do I do with this gift? How do I truly honour this gift? What is, what now that I have this new opportunity, uh, how do I best live it? And so it's an unpacking of new life. 
And, and I think too, it's important to in that new life not to get triumphalist about that oh, either, absolutely. because mm. we're going to continue without <laughs> thinking about Peter, mm. uh, the apostle. You know, he um, after resurrection, his his new life, his uh, the the and and we do know whatever you think of Christian history, we do know that this is radically um, changed community that that sends out ripples all over the world. That this small group of disciples has been transformed in such a way that they go out and they change the life of others. But Peter's, it isn't all, you know, it's not a walk in a park. Peter's told quite clearly, you're going to go where you don't want to go. Um, and it's going to be painful, you know, and there's going to be, there is going to be suffering around. You're not going to be choosing it. Um, clearly, that's part of the, you are going to go where you're not going to go. The idea of choosing suffering or being self-sacrificing is a bit of nonsense, really, in, in the Christian journey, because we know that there will be suffering, but it's not what God would would ask us to seek after but it but it's not this triumphant thing it's about being faithful to the call on our life and to the life and the joy that is in us and to the honesty of that be to the things that have to be said and the things that have to be the the way what is the natural way you follow now you have this life within you you can't do anything else almost peter the apostle couldn't do anything else other than what he was called to do after that point is it hard for both of you in any way I guess as people working within the church where Easter is, I imagine probably your busiest season, certainly alongside Christmas, you, there's a lot on, a lot of services, a lot of people around. Is it sometimes hard to stop and allow it to be the message of transformation for the both of you as well? Because I suppose in the busyness of it all, where other people's lives over that long weekend are generally quieter because they are, have time off work and, and they're not as, as jam-packed, it is a, such a busy time for you. Do you find it difficult ever for it to be that, that season, that time of personal transformation? No. <laughs> the liturgy is so powerful um, that the, the liturgy is so powerful that every year, I just on, on the day before uh, Palm Sunday, I think I'm not ready for this, right? The liturgy takes over my life. And plays itself, and this is the magic thing about the story, is the story plays itself out in me. And I get taken over by the, the liturgy and the power of the story and the rhythm plays out in me. There's nothing I have to do other than turn up. I reckon, I reckon that half of, half of the Christian journey is turning up. Turning up to the community and exposing yourself to the transformative practices. And I, I, you know, I've, I have never had an Easter where I've not been absolutely moved because the liturgy just takes over. And that's the adventure of this all too. You, you mm. actually, you know, you can't predict always where it's going to go, mm. but you get swept up in it. Yeah, it gets and up. and I, I was um, worried when I left the cathedral because I love this place so much, and I was really worried when I went out to St Andrews at Indrapilly that it would feel somewhat different, or that it wouldn't have that same quality to to really move me and take me in the liturgy. And it was such a relief. You get as soon as I got up there behind the altar, that straight away we're back in this space of transformation again, you know. And it and you know, I trust Easter, the first Easter out there will, will also be the same. That you, it sweeps you up and takes takes you in along with the whole community that you journey with together across those days. Uh, but I, I certainly think it's that the that Easter is. Um, 
is a high point, but we've had all the weeks of Lent leading up to it, all all the weeks of travelling together, try, uh, learning to, to let go, to be aware of ourselves, to allow the light to shine inward in our lives in a way that's honest and brave. It does take some courage, you know. It's so much, it's so much easier to keep up, just keep up the appearances and keep up doing things as you've been doing them, you know. So the challenge of Lent is to say, how about this Lent? I, I go and um, really have a go at being myself. How about I have a go at letting go of these props that I know I'm hanging on to um, and and see where that takes me. We should talk a bit about Lent before we do wrap up, actually, because I know in, you know, in some traditions um, which don't follow, I guess, the church calendar as much, Lent is... You, most people there might not have heard the word before. And then in many other churches, certainly the, the one I grew up in, it was a almost a competitive, what are you giving up? Who's giving up the most for Lent? Um, I remember once uh, telling someone that I was giving up a certain TV show that I loved for Lent. Uh, this is someone who was a youth leader. And they said, is that all? <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. idea being that, no, you got to give up more than that. Yeah. There's got there's a benchmark. you you got to be suffering to give something up here. Yes, yes. Um, how would you reframe what the Lent, obviously, for those who, who maybe haven't come from the church calendar tradition, the 40 days leading up to Easter, um, how would you... Well, how would you frame what the season of Lent is or, or could be? Yeah, I mean, some of it I've alluded to already that, that Lent is is about is a stripping back and a letting go uh, rather than a, you know, sort of a self-denial. I think there's so much danger in in self-sacrifice and a danger that, that morally it doesn't take us anywhere useful. You know, when we're sitting there, you will always be sitting if you're sacrificing something, even if you're trying to sacrifice it quietly and not mentioning it to other people, you know, sooner or later you'll be thinking, well, why aren't they sacrificing as much as I'm sacrificing? You know, <laughs> the comparisons will get going. That sense of resentment that, uh, that, that you've always had to sacrifice too much and why haven't other people sacrificed as much for you? And I think that Lent, therefore, we need to be very, very careful in the way we approach it. We, it's not that listing off of all the things we've ever done wrong in our life. It's not that kind of, kind of list. I don't believe God is at all interested in those kind of lists. You know, the, God, I believe, is interested in us and ourselves and our capacity. As, and it's not always easy. So we, you know, it's not something we can just do through willpower. It's something that happens through prayer. Something so for me, Lent is a much more focused time of, um, of, of. There is some discipline. I don't think discipline's a bad word. You know, a, a discipline of prayer, of making that space. Just like you know, we, we have a habit of cleaning our teeth every morning. You know, I think sometimes we haven't put prayer and our contemplative practices in that same boat. It's a, it's a habit for our own well-being. And uh, a, a friend used to use the phrase, don't feel guilty when you don't do these things. Don't feel guilty, feel ripped off. And and yeah, I think yeah. that's yeah, that's that's, th- that's the right take approach yeah, to take fantastic. into Lent. Yeah, yeah I think that's, um, that's a really helpful insight, I think. Uh, uh, the other thing about Lent is that it's 40 days. It's 40 days before Easter and it... It's a symbol and a sign that it actually takes time for all of this to unfold. And so it's a way of the church saying, in order to get ready for that paschal journey at the end, you have to set aside some time to get ready. And it just reminds us that you can't just jump into these things and expect expect the full fruits of it. You actually have to give up some time to get yourself ready uh, anticipate it's the time when we do a lot of reflection and thinking um, 
I also don't agree with the idea of picking off a group of things to give up and somehow see that as helpful, and unless it is something that actually speaks to you in your deepest self. So, you know, a friend, a friend of mine used to give up alcohol for Lent because he came from a family where alcoholism was a deep problem. And so for him, it was really important every year that he checked in that he wasn't going down that family track. So for him, it wasn't just about giving up alcohol and self-denial. It was actually checking in with who he was and where he was in life. And so for him, it was actually a very personal, deep question about who am I and what drives me. And that's very different to saying, oh, I'm giving up alcohol for Lent and I'll get through and, and won't I be virtuous. He was actually looking at himself. You know, I always challenge that idea of giving up stuff by saying, yes, I give up um, poor quality chocolate, instant coffee and bad, um, bad wine for Lent. Um, don't you know? Don't drink anything that's not worth twenty dollars a bottle. <laughs> but it, you know, because it really does not have any value, unless it is actually something about us wanting to understand who we are. So it's again, it's that practice of, so who am I? So you know, we encourage people to practice the sacrament of reconciliation or confession, as it's called. Um, and it's not because you should ha it's not because you should do your confession. It's actually because this is a way of spending time uh, asking yourself, so who am I? What have I, what have I, what have I been up to? What have I neglected? Um, and honestly putting that out there. Well, I find um, the sacrament of reconciliation, the scariest and yet most liberating thing I ever do in my life. Mm. And, and it's part of that Lenten journey because it's just a way of saying, this is who Peter Cat really is. It's not who Peter Cat wants people to think he is. Um, it's, this is Peter Cat. This is the complex being called Peter Cat who thinks these things, does these things, fails to do these things, and at the end of the confession or the reconciliation to be told, okay, that's cool. <laughs> You're free of all that. Don't let that stuff hold you back anymore. What's next, Peter? Yeah. Don't, it's not about your past anymore. What's next, Peter? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do, you know, as Mary Oliver says, with your one free wild life? What are you going to do with it? And I think that the confession and absolution that we practice in the church, you know, we, we sometimes do need to hear it from someone. It's not that the priest has uh, this strange power that other people don't have, but they need God with skin on sometimes to be reflecting. It's like mirroring God's words to you. You need, you know, sometimes you need to hear it audibly. Uh, and, and I think that's an important part and to recognise too that this isn't, again, a tick the box and then we go and, you know, say six Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and say that that, that will fix it for us because that's just going back to that same old system of the world of, of you pay for things, that's transactional once again. But this is about release. You know, it, it's about letting go and, and release and being honest in that moment that is so confronting and yet is where the freedom lies. And we can do that for one another too. I think it is the difficulty 
as well with, you know, with what you're talking about, they say six Hail Marys and also why people sometimes are drawn to the model of giving something up for, for Lent because it gives them something to do. They, they, they kind of want something to do. Tell me what to do here because that is obviously in some ways much easier than being told, enter into a mystery it's much easier to be told, go and do this. Don't right. don't touch chocolate for 40 days. That's right. And if you give up chocolate for 40 days and you think that's your discipline and you go through 40 days and you've done it, haven't you? Whereas mm. if it's about who are you, you know, and what what are you called to do and what needs to die and what is dying that you're trying to keep on life support that maybe it's time you sort of turned the switches off and went through the process of saying goodbye. Um, you know, that's no wonder people give up chocolate. Yes, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so... so I mean, would you... I would rather give up chocolate than <laughs> think about what part of my life is on life support that needs to be sort of fixed. And, yeah. Well, one, one requires a journey to the depths of yourself mm. and yeah. the other is just a bit of self-control. That's right, yeah. absolutely. I suppose. That's yeah. right, put out the nets to the deep parts of the water. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> That's so right. As, as we do approach then this this Lent and this Easter season um, for people listening live or or around the time of upload, I should say, um, what, what would you say then for people who maybe feel in the past they haven't been, they haven't, Easter hasn't been a period of transformation for them, they haven't prepared themselves, they haven't mm. gone to the depths of themselves mm. They've just avoided chocolate, maybe, mm. for 40 days, or they've seen an interesting drama on Good Friday and Easter Sunday at their church. What what approaches, what practices can... W- would you encourage people to maybe set aside a time of day to, to journal, to pray? W- are there certain things that could be a part of an Easter, without making it a what-you-need-to-do situation? Yeah, that's right. Are there yeah. certain no, practices, that, that disciplines, that could be a part of making it, a, a, I suppose, really engaging with the transformation of this season? Well, I think I think it's helpful if people find some way of doing self-reflection. Now, that might be going for a walk in the bush and just asking yourself, so where's my life up to? It might be um, doing one of the more sort of uh, directive-type spiritual exercises like the Ignatian Examine, where you actually look at your life and you make some notes about what the high points and the low points and ask yourself questions. Um, I think I'm I'm also bold enough to say one of the great things about the holy days of uh, Holy Week, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, is that a whole lot of people who don't normally come to church come to church. So if you really wanted to experience some of the Paschal mystery without the idea of you going to sort of get snavelled into some group of people who are going to hold on to you forever it's actually a good time to have a little try of church because there's lots of strangers in church on those days and um you know the liturgy the liturgy does have that power to be transformative so give it a try but above all else do take some time just to turn off the music uh, stop being distracted by all the things that we allow to distract us and take the time, sit on a beach, sit by the river, go for a walk and just ask that question, you know, 
how does the cycle fit my life what is what what are the little deaths or the big deaths that i've been covering up that i need to understand as a is just that pattern of good friday and intimacy giving away to death and those sort of mm. ask and and just look at them and say wow look at that and then maybe look for the rays of resurrection that have actually come out of it because for a lot of people the the paschal mystery has been running along in their life anyway they've, they've had the dying and they've had the rising and they've never recognized the pattern and being able to say well yes that died but look what came out of it is a real gift because if we do that often enough then we actually learn that the pattern is real and the pattern is solid and the pattern is predictable, which means that next time we get chucked into the Garden of Gethsemane by our friends or whoever it is who just abandoned us or life, then we might just be able to say, well, I've been here before and I'll wait for the dawn. I, I would say too, there's a simple question I think that many people put fend off in their lives. I think you could ask themselves, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? As you go into Lent, if you have that, that question in the forefront of your mind and don't spend your time drinking half a bottle of wine every night so you don't have to think about it or it kind of numbs it and don't spend your time so busy that you don't allow the question to surface allow yourself you know be brave enough to go into that and ask that question where does it hurt and as you find as those answers come up see where the patterns in your life are that are stopping you from listening to that voice because god speaks in the language of the desires of our heart and i think that's somewhere that the christian church has lost somewhere amongst it that that that's actually those desires uh that they're godly things you know, and if God speaks in that language, we need to be listening. And as we listen to where does it hurt, then we open ourselves up to finding a new way forward and a way of healing. But you don't know if you never allow to find out where that pain is. And once you've got that, the other thing is also to make sure you have you journey with others, that you have a good friend, have a soul friend, have a spiritual director. You know, do both where you can, that you have people that you are bouncing this off because we are never meant to be solitary beings, ever. Mm. I'm into that. One thing I should mention also that I find a very rich part of my Lent journey is the nocturnes that are done here at the cathedral. And if you are in Brisbane... I, I am not af affiliated with the cathedral, so I can happily promote this without any fear of uh, of corruption um, on the podcast. Can you speak a bit about the nocturnes that you do here and, and the thinking behind them, Peter? Yeah, sure. Um, nocturnes happen at nine o'clock on a Friday night in Lent. Um, and it's a time when we really create an open space in the cathedral it's, and um, a very small choir sings a short program, sort of 25 to 35 minutes of usually unaccompanied music. And we encourage people to um, lie on the floor, um, walk around the building, use, and sometimes and at least one Friday we have a, a labyrinth walk associated with it. And then we finish with the Office of Compline, which is a beautiful, simple service of prayer at the end of the day. And it's really, it's really uh, one of the ways we help people open that reflective space that is so important to find in Lent. 
And because it's out of the ordinary and it's not at an ordinary time of day, it actually does help a lot of people have a, a bit of time to ask those really deep questions and ask, you know, what, where is my life going and what, what does need to die? And I think Sue's question of where does it hurt, I think that's a really key question. I suppose it's one of the examples we're talking about of creating that space the equivalent of sitting by the river absolutely, um, mm. and just asking, mm. where am I at? Yeah. And the great thing about, you know, you gather with a group of people and a thing like that, you can be um, quiet together and it, um, it's a bit like fishing. You know, if you sit, sit on the riverbank with a fishing line, people think you're doing something and you don't even have to have bait on the end of the hook. It's just an excuse to be and to allow some reflective process to happen. Mm. Well, that is a, a spectacular conversation. Thank you so much to both of you. I didn't even ask what your favourite Easter egg was. So I feel like we <laughs> haven't covered the big uh, issues there. Surely it's the Kinder Surprise eggs. Oh, it's just the hollow them. one because it's the one like the tomb. <laughs> oh, I was going to say something much less spiritual. I was gonna, eh, eh, as long I was as it's chocolate, biased. we'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> um, well, uh, look, a good quality so chocolate. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much to, to both of you for the time. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.